Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the Journal of Asian American Studies and the New Books Network. I'm Donna Anderson, assistant editor for Jazz and a six-year PhD candidate in history and Asian American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And I'm Tandy, a second-year PhD student in history and Asian American studies at UCSB and one of the co-conveners of the Asian American Studies Collective on this campus. In this episode, we're spotlighting the most recent issue of Jazz titled Reckoning with the Interdiscipline, guest edited by Kathy Schlund-Biles, Lily Ann Welty-Tamai, and Paul Spickard. This special issue of Jazz was initially born out of a conversation between the editors in 2018 at the Annual Association for Asian American Studies, or AAAS, conference in San Francisco, California. In recognizing the 50th anniversary since the 1968 West Coast institutionalization of ethnic studies as a distinct discipline, and the 40th anniversary of AAAS as an identifiable academic organization in 1979, the issue takes stock of the trajectory, achievements, and challenges faced by the field of Asian American studies. Is there a reason for Asian American studies? What are its preoccupations, its problems, and its possibilities in our present moment, more than 50 years on from our beginnings in a time fraught with nativism and racial conflict? What ought Asian American studies to be doing as we go forward? These are the questions that animate the special issue. By using the term reckoning, the editors not only tip their hats to Lisa Lowe's influential formulation of Asian American studies as comprised of a quote-unquote tireless reckoning with the past, but also to the aspirations and promises of Asian American studies activist roots. This legacy is, the editors suggest, ambiguous. Asian Americans continue to be racialized in terms of the model minority and their other subjectivities are often erased. The field has been unable to resist the broader neoliberal realities of the contemporary US academy and the relationship between scholar and activist remains fraught. The issue itself consists of 17 contributions divided into four sections, the arc of history, community, institutional issues, and critique with contributions from a range of both senior and emerging scholars. In the following interview, we sat down with two of the special issue editors, Lily Ann Welty-Tamai, a lecturer at UCLA and UCSB's Asian American Studies Department, and Paul Spickard, Distinguished Professor of History, Asian American Studies, and Black Studies at UCSB, to talk about the special issue in greater depth. The seed of this special issue was planted at the AAAS conference in San Francisco in 2018, and it was intended to acknowledge the dual anniversaries of the 1968 institutionalization of ethnic studies and the 1979 creation of AAAS. Four years after your first meeting about this in June 2022, this special issue has now been released. Can you explain some of what happened between 2018 and now? And aside from pushing back the timeline, how did the COVID-19 pandemic shape the issue? We, um, the three uh issue editors got together um at uh, in san francisco and we had griped to each other over the years about the way that the triple uh, as has grown and changed um and we had all been through this experience together and um uh, kathy schlund files is really responsible uh for this happening uh, because she pushed us and she dragged us along with her so I wish that she could be here for this conversation, but she can't. Um, between 2018 and, and now, uh, 
yeah, we had two and a half years of COVID and all of us were working twice as hard and delivering education that was half as good. Um, and uh, some of us were sick. Um, and then there were some of us got sick in other kinds of ways. Had uh, both I and Kathy had a bunch of uh, medical disasters, and that just slowed everything down. Um, uh, and so we, it was difficult for us to uh, to bring the issue together. Uh, but now it's there, and I think it's spectacular. Uh, uh, Lily's chapter, especially. Um, and, uh, so I, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, how did it shape the issue? Lily, I, I, is there a content way that it shaped it? I think what we're looking at is that there is, because we live in a capitalist society and the urge to produce is something that we can't get away from, even while there is a raging global pandemic new diseases, bonus monkeypox now, right? We have just, we just soldier on and soldier on. And I think what happened was, I think the COVID-19 pandemic in a lot of ways allowed us to not sort of forced us to, to slow things down. And unfortunately that meant the publication of the issue didn't match the anniversary timing. But I think what it did do is it gave us a chance to rethink some things through. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people remarked the rise of anti-Asian sentiment at that time. I think that's something that many Asian American communities were cognizant of. They were, it was in their faces. We saw social media recording after recording of people being attacked all over the country because their Asian descent was a prominent part of our connection to this, the COVID-19 and the ways in which the, the virus, virus was racialized. Um, and I think what this delay, this forced delay, right, um, allowed us to reflect on Asian American studies and COVID-19 and the historic racialization of Asian Americans in this country. So in a lot of ways, I think it, it was for the better for this delay, because again, too, we are, we default to soldiering on and maybe we just need to stop for a moment and reflect. And I think that really did give us a chance to do that. So, Yeah, I think it, it, if we had turned something out quickly, it would have been more of a surface treatment. Uh, each, several of the essays from the first iteration we saw to the final version, uh, they marinated and they, some of them began to talk to each other in ways that they had not done uh, earlier. Uh, and as Lily suggests, um, there was, I think if we had done it earlier, there would have been a little more sense of celebration and um, of kind of happy optimism. And, you know, the role, uh, the social status of Asian Americans, um, at, at the one time there are for certain chunks of the population, there have been lots of blessings. Um, but there is the there is the forever foreigner problem that came so vividly, viciously, physically to the fore in the last couple of years um, that might have not have um, ha have come uh, come out if we hadn't if we had not had the pandemic. 
And if I could jump in too to think about how else the Asian American community was affected by the pandemic. Historically, we know the Filipino American community is entrenched in healthcare and care work. Kathy Sinise Choi writes about this in her book, The Empire of Care, and so many of we know, right? You you can't go to a hospital, urgent care, or medical facility and not see staff who are Filipino, Filipino American. And I think the I think it was September twenty twenty, the fall, right before before we we got all the vaccines mobilized and going, I think it was September 2020, where tremendous number, I think, and I wish I had the statistic right here, but um, it was reported that most of many of the healthcare workers who perished as a result of catching COVID in those hospital settings or medical settings were Filipino American. It was like one fourth or one third, something. It was a huge number of in September 2020. I do remember that. Um, but so I think a lot, all of for all these reasons, I think in a lot of ways the COVID 19 pandemic forced us to engage with the forever foreigner, forced us to engage with racialized labor. And our position, many people who work in academia are largely protected from these things. We're not, we're not frontline workers. We, we weren't. We were our families, right, and extended communities, certainly. But I think this is a position of privilege to be able to sit and marinate and write. And I think that also uh, reflecting on those things also really was important for us to do and to get this right, to get the to get it spot on. So, Yeah, I think there's so many really wonderful things that both of you have just said in that and, you know, talking a little bit about the positionality and, and what COVID-19 did to us and as scholars and also as the field, um, you know, and even though it was technically a missed anniversary and maybe there wasn't a ton of celebration, the fact is, is that it came out during the 25th anniversary of the Journal of Asian American Studies. So I do think there's still quite a lot of marking and celebration to be had, and and hopefully that can be reflected in this conversation. But uh, I wanted to kind of transition us to the next question, which is thinking a little bit about the audience um, for the special issue. So there is such a broad range of articles in this piece from reflections on changing trajectory and expansions of the field to essays tackling issues that feel urgently pressing like COVID-19 and Russell Jung's work, the solidarity or lack thereof between Asian Americans and African Americans that Naoko Shibasawa talks about, the precarity of the contemporary job market, which is Jean-Paul R. Contreras de Guzman and Douglas Ishii's pieces, so given this broad range, who is the intended audience for the special issue? And how should our different audience members, precocious undergrads and PhD students, early career academics and more established scholars approach reading this special issue? I think for, for many folks, um, all the audience members that you addressed, I think in the spirit of Asian American studies, Right. Our, our roots are really in the community, and I hope that the community would read these articles. Right. Um, unfortunately, some academic journals have paywalls and it doesn't allow for community members to read it. It doesn't allow for community members who don't speak English to read it. So there certainly are challenges to that kind of access. But I think in a lot of ways, um, this is this is a, a kind of a juncture of where we are where we currently stand. And I hope that, my hope is that um, scholars, precarious, precocious undergrads, PhD students, all of the, all of the above um, can read it with, with the spirit of 
Asian American studies that activism, the the precarity right precarity of the job market and folks who are in um, positions without security um, that can see this and really see themselves in it. Um, that is partially or whom I hope would be reading it and taking it in. I also hope that um, people who have more stability and power can also get a sense of how much work we still have to do. You know, I was struck as we put this together by how many different Asian American studies there are. When we started out with the first uh, courses in the uh, early 1970s, pretty much if there was sociology and history, uh, and that was pretty much it. And then later we added literature and then the, as, as classics, that are now, things that are now classic came back into, into print. And as a, a whole field grew and then the cultural studies and film studies and gender studies and a whole, a whole host of other kinds of things. I hope that when people read this, they will look to the chapters in this special issue that are not the things they know about. Because we have become a whole bunch of different disconnected subdisciplines, um, and uh, and so that the folks who are quantoid sociologists will read the cultural theory people, uh, and the cultural theory people will read Russell Jung and think seriously about what is our relationship to the communities that we come from, and what are the you know what piece of that legacy? Because for God's sakes, when we when we first founded Asian American studies, we were meeting in union halls and church basements. And you know, now we're meeting in midtown Manhattan, high rise hotels and wearing elegant suits and all these other kinds, being very professional and being very taken with ourselves. And to remember those other kinds of things, um, to remember the local community, to remember the folks who aren't, don't have PhDs, and don't have access to that kind of education, and who are working with their bodies, driving cabs, processing meat, all those other kinds of things, appreciating that variety and our connection to it, and maybe our responsibility to it. I think what's striking is that another really important part of the juncture that this special issue is able to capture um, is not only how we do Asian American studies, as you're talking about, Paul, in terms of discipline, in terms of our commitment to community and activism, but also who the proper subjects of Asian American studies are. Um, and so a number of the essays in this special issue comment on how our conception of Asian Americans has shifted since 1968. And so we have articles that touch on Southeast Asians in Yenle Spiritu's article, West Asians in Sinai Namira, South Asians in Tamara Bala and Pavan Dinga, as well as a brief mention of Native Pacific Islander studies in Lisa Yonayama's essay, as well as adoptees in Kimberly um, McKee and multiracial Asian communities in your own work, Lily. So are there any aspects of Asian American-ness as it has evolved over the last 50 years that you wish had been given more space in this issue? I think some of the time constraints and the the initial organizing and the COVID pandemic somewhat prevented us from being able to 
we cast our net very widely and then we realized some some folks were left out and i and for me i think as asian american as the asian american community matures and we establish institutions and departments and programs in in our respective right and course courses that we absolutely consider and make it a part of our curriculum, even if it's uncomfortable, even if we have to study more and learn more and learn along the way, but to be more inclusive of Pacific Islander communities. If we're, I know that the Asian American Pacific Islander designation in this, that was created in the night, I think 76 with some folks from leaders from Samoa and, and other places in Polynesia came and the Census Bureau took on that. And that's kind of since become AAPI and it's not always AAPI, but I think besides Native American and American Indian studies, right, Pacific Islanders really don't have a, a, a space in academia to really be, right, unless you're a scholar who happens to not do something to, to in another field, right, and it's not necessarily directly connected to Pacific Islander or Oceania studies, but I think it is, that's the one area that I, I, I hope that we think about this to just be inclusive and make sure to cast our net wider. So, um, Yeah, let me uh, piggyback on that, if I may. I teach at a, a comprehensive university that just was ranked the seventh best uh, public university in America by some agency that doesn't know. Um, and out of all of our thousands of courses at this university, we have one course on Pacific Island anything. And it's not in the history department or the anthropology department or the sociology department. It's in the Department of Asian American Studies. And that's purposeful. Uh, and I, so I think that, that, that Lily's right on about that. I would, I would note that, the, that there have always been Tibetan Americans and Nepali Americans and Burmese Americans, but they have not really made it onto the map of Asian American studies. Uh, I know one book on Burmese American Buddhists, and that's about it. Um, it is not mine to decide. I am not Asian American. Um, uh, but I, uh, I would, would note that at the beginning, it was pretty much Chinese and Japanese students at universities like UCLA and Berkeley and the University of Washington that were the core part of, of, uh, of the population demanding Asian American studies and, and were the core subjects of the, uh, of the emerging uh, interdiscipline. Um, but uh, there were Filipinos there too, but in smaller numbers and kind of in a second place. Uh, since that time, Filipinos have become much closer to the core of Asian American uh, studies at large, and Koreans have been added, and Vietnamese have been added, but a lot of Southeast Asians are kind of on a second tier, even now. And uh, there's a book from a long time ago about South Asian Americans, one of the first ones, called Apart, A Part, Yet Apart. You know, the, the incomplete integration of uh, South Asians, uh, uh, sometimes, and, and, and most Asian Americans have kind of a two-level 
ethnic identity. I'm an Asian American and I'm also a Chinese American or I'm also Vietnamese. And what about the folks who are Vietnamese and Filipino? Um, and they, you know that 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 they we can't just lump them all in the mixed category. That the who is an Asian American is a complicated thing, and certainly uh, for the last since nine eleven, uh, the positionality of Afghan Americans and uh, Syrian Americans and lots of Southwest Asian peoples has been very close to that which has been experienced by uh, other Asian American peoples. And so the degrees to which that coalition has some room. I mean, it was, it was really significant that an organization that I have been very critical of, the Japanese American Citizens League, was the first ethnic organization after 9-11 to publicly embrace the Arab American population and say, we got your back. And um, that sense of common positionality and commonly being treated as eternal foreigners by uh, the mainly white American population is uh, that's enough to build, to make that coalition a, a fairly flexible thing and um, uh, to make, to, to give it strength. I think too, as Paul mentioned, uh, this idea of, Asian American, there's this core of who's Asian American, and that often is the default story of right, privileging East Asians. Um, and that becomes, again, this defining feature of what is Asian American studies, what is what is this in, in broad terms. I also think that because we, as Asian American studies has grown, we do a deeper dive into our individual communities because we need research in political science and right economics in the Pacific and right and we need all of these we need it, those interdisciplinary scholars and to, to take a look at how a particular community is engaging with whatever that may be again elections or um, small businesses international transnational whatever it may be. But I also think in our eagerness to do a deep dive, we kind of get into our silos and we forget that there is, right? It, it takes some kind of tragic event like 9-11 or um, right, some other or, or anti-Asian sentiment for us to say, oh, wait, that's right. We have to build coalitions. And so it it's almost as if the we're, we're on the responding end rather than being on the proactive end of those kinds of events. So I think as we move forward, Paul's absolutely right in thinking about how are we going, right? Multiracial is one category, but we also have a lot of multi-ethnic folks who are bilingual or maybe, or maybe only speak English. How do we reckon with those individuals and really bring them into the fold? Um, what about, right, the, the complicatedness of, Filipino mestizaje, right? You've, you're ethnically Chinese, but also culturally Filipino. We've got those kind of things, those, those kind of communities who complicate things. But all of this is to say that I think as we, we are in a position with a little bit of a window into the future of where we're headed. We know population statistics and, and folks like the Pew Research Center have have projections of where we're headed. The Japanese American community will be a majority multiracial by 2025 or 2030. Other communities are not far behind. The 
the Pacific Islander community is already over 50% multiracial. What do we do with those kinds of communities? How are, how are we going to bring them in? Because if we don't bring them in, we're going to have the same problem of, right, we've, we're, we're going to, you know, the, 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 the authenticity policing is going to be certain, we will certainly lose our numbers, right? So how are we going to think about being inclusive as a default rather than exclusive and go beyond our individual silos and think about this as a greater coalition, a broader way to connect? One of the things, because I've been at almost every uh, Asian American Association for Asian American Studies meeting since 1981. Um, and I, I can remember seeing multiracial people be questioned by monoracial people. What are you doing here? I can, I can remember uh, when Pacific Islanders were asked the same question. I can remember when uh, South Asians were asked the same question. I can remember when adoptees were asked the same question. And all of this reminds us that the Asian American Studies Project is not just an academic project. It's, it started and it continues to be a political project. Uh, and that's, that's what gives it its driving power. Uh, that's what holds it together analytically as well as uh, in terms of sort of webs of networks and whatnot. Um, so um, that means we got plenty of future because the politics aren't going away. As long as there are people in America that lump Asians all together and treat them bad because of it. To Tandy, to answer your question too, to think about who counts as Asian American, I also think um, one other area where we can be thinking about kind of future projections is, of course, um, this regional identity of Asian Americans, right? Not everybody is in California or on the West Coast or in a New York enclave, right? Many many Asian American communities are also in the South. And there is another aspect of kind of how to think about Asian Americanness and being a Southerner, right? And how that also translates into the ways in which they have had to double down on certain ways to protect their communities um, or protect their economic interests or, right, and we see a long history of that. Um, and so thinking about these regional connections, there's lots of adoptees in the Midwest. How might that mid Midwestern sensibilities affect the, right, the identity of Asian American adoptees and their response to understanding their position in their community and church? And, um, and, and, and we can spend hours talking about all the other intersections. But to me, I think um, these are the, the definition of who is an Asian, who counts as an Asian American is, is complicated and it's political and it's also evolving. And so we got to be aware of that evolution and that change and not respond as the authenticity police <laughs> to say who gets to be what, right? Who, who are we to say who that is, right? So this is just, again, something to think of. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, um, you know, certainly from 
um, my perspective, I often think about Asian American studies in a trans-Pacific, transnational lens, precisely because a lot of what comes out of Asian American scholar uh, scholarship is extremely legible to, legible to me as an Asian Australian. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of uh, regional within the US, which of course Donna can speak to as well, but also a, a much bigger kind of Asian diaspora, transnational dimension as well. So it's it's really lovely that. Um, there are so many ways in which the field is adapting and evolving to be able to think about these complexities that kind of um, challenge our kind of orthodox conception of Asian American studies as such. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to, you know, kind of what the future the field will be and like the different shifts and curvatures and quote unquote boundaries um, of Asian American studies, right. As a, as a critique, you know, as a intervention, as a, a place of theorization, right? So, you know, sustaining and maintaining Asian American studies in certain capacities, whether that be in academia, whether that be in our communities, I think is vital to all of us in this conversation, but probably everybody who's listening as well. And so one of the things we were thinking about is is along the lines of what John Paul R. Contreras de Guzman and Douglas Ishii were talking about in their articles. And they were talking about their experiences with the precariousness of academic workers. And so Ishii notes at the end of his article that on his sixth year of the job market and in the aftermath of the pandemic's initial shock, we have seen the surge of interest, including tenure track positions in Asian American studies. So where do you see this movement of popular and university interest in Asian American studies going and how can it be sustained? And building off of that too, how do you think it'll influence or not the next 50 years of Asian American studies? Uh, I, um, I grew up in the Baptist church and I learned many things there. And one of them was not to trust people who make predictions about the future because there was always eschatology and end time as somebody was talking about what was going to happen in the future. And I got no clue. Um, uh, I, I think certainly all the trends in ed, higher education suggest that uh, Asian American student populations are going to continue to be large and growing uh, and, grow, and growing in every part of the country. And that there are many little colleges in the Midwest that would like to have a course or two in Asian American studies because they've got some Asian American students. Um, and that's not pandering. That's helping them discover their place in the world and connect with others who have a connected place in the world. So I think there's going to be there's going to be a bright future for that. Certainly, everybody that every student who has come through our a university and gotten a PhD in Asian American kinds of fields has found a place in the academy. Sometimes it takes a while because the I'm, I hate to use the word neoliberal, but the uh, the neoliberal academy has decided that we're going to hire mostly uh, contingent workers uh, and pay them less and pay them crappy benefits and all other kinds of things. And there's somebody who is on the other side of um, that divide between contingent and tenured. Um, I I feel guilty, but I'm not giving it back. Um, I um, I think that the, that there is a bright future for people who work in this field, but I think that increasingly we're going to they're they're going to have to be students who can work in multiple disciplines, 
who, who can work in public facing kinds of ways, uh, like public history, like uh, museum studies, um, uh, like community based organization work. Um, uh, and they're going to have to think about analytically about who are the other fields in the academy where they can make linkages, whether that be to queer studies or uh, sexuality studies or feminist studies or black studies or Jewish studies at yeshiva. Um, there, because there are lots of similar or related analytical issues in those places. And insofar as we can give up the authenticity testing and give up the boundaries to uh, our disciplines and reach across them, I think that uh, we'll have a, a, a growing uh, enterprise far into the future. I think, Paul, you speak to the need of kind of individuals who have to be broad, think broadly, right? Think how Asian American studies or Asian American studies scholarship can become interdisciplinary or think about our position in the community. And I think those are absolutely excellent points because we do need those intersections. I also think that individuals can only do so much, right? We can try our hardest, but if the institutions do not find spaces to include us, then we're kind of moving forward, trying our best, but we don't, you know, you're, you're circling the parking lot and there's no more parking spaces, right? We got to build more parking spaces. Um, and I think as we um, go forward, I think it's people who have power, who are on the other side of tenure, right? can push for those kinds of things and make room at the table, right? Not close the door. Um, and, it, and it isn't, this isn't a sort of guilt trip or anything, but I do think that it is key for institutions to consider like the CSUs to, right, include an ethnic studies requirement that's going to expand jobs for ethnic studies scholars, Asian American, not only Asian American studies scholars, but others. So I think it really has to be a, a combination of both, right? Both the individual creativity, but also institutionalizing our space. And it's tough because Ivory Tower is is white, right? The Ivory Tower is in the color of it. And so how do we folks on the inside make room? How do we do that? And I think those kinds of conversations are slowly coming forward. What are some strategies? I know Connecticut and New York have changed some requirements that we're going to see ethnic studies at, I think, even the high school level, at the college level, right? And I think these are all important strategies, multi-pronged strategies to be able to, to, to create those kinds of spaces. Because I know when I was in high school, which is a long time ago, I never learned about the Japanese American incarceration. I first heard about it as a as a college student, and at least now, in, in students who are taking Intro to Asian American Studies courses that I have interacted with, who have who I have interacted with, don't you know? It's not that's not the first time they've heard of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act or the 1942 <laughs> Executive Order 9066. But but there's not much in between. Let alone are we they getting any information on? South Asians or the Southeast Asians or without centering Amer the American perspective on the Vietnam War. Not We're not even looking at Vietnamese American refugees and their 
connection and trans-Pacific movement, right? Those are those are out of the question. We have to reflect on the best strategies, and it takes folks in power and folks without power to do that. You're exactly right, and I'm glad that you added that 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 point. Um, and that means it's my responsibility as a senior professor to make those spaces, and that's in a related effort that comes from my having been uh, in Asian American studies all these years. I've spent most of my time the last two years working on building a program in American Indian and Indigenous studies at my university because we don't have that. Um, though we have more self-identified American Indians on our campus than on any other UC campus. Uh, and we're trying to fix that. But that's it is the responsibility of those senior people. I know that two people who came through our PhD program are now vice presidents for academics at two universities in Hawaii, and they're doing those kinds of things there. Because it's not just about our individual careers. And that's one of the things that we have tended to lose as we have become more professionalized over the years. We have become, we have tended to be like, have you seen my suit? It's Hugo Boss. Um, And I just got a prize for my book. Okay, so what did you do? to help other, bring other people along, to make opportunities for other folks. What did you do there? That's really important. And it's part of the Asian American political project from the beginning. And it's a piece that we need to honor and replicate. I think it's a really uh, fitting that we kind of end on this point about structural factors and the institution, because such an important theme running through the special issue is the relationship between um, the Asian American Academy and the kind of political mission of Asian American studies as it was conceived in the late 1960s. Um, And so certainly it is a kind of perennial problem to think about the ways that institutionalization and professionalization and the quote-unquote neoliberal academy um, is shifting and changing um, what we do and and how we can kind of resist that and, and make kind of structural changes that mean that the conditions for resisting that are possible. Um, But anyway, I want to thank you, Paul and Lily, for taking time out of your day to speak to us and for sharing your insights. Um, Donna and I hope that everyone can uh, pick up a copy of this special issue and give it a read and that it can be at the beginning of many interesting and stimulating conversations. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the JAS podcast, a collaboration between the Journal of Asian American Studies and the New Books Network. It is produced by the Journal of Asian American Studies with the help of the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. It is mixed by myself, and the music featured in it is by the local Vancouver band Necking.